to the book of Romans. We're in a transition. Amen. We have been now for 11 chapters, 72 lessons over the course of over two years uh, studying the, the book of Romans. And, and we're at a point now where the book of Romans makes a transition from doctrinal theological uh, subject matter to practical Christian living. Holiness, godliness, righteousness. And so uh, chapter 12 is the beginning of that that next phase. It will take up the rest of the book. And so from here on out, we're going to be more less theological concepts and more rubber meets the road. Amen. This is where we live. The question, the operative question is then, how now shall we live? Now that we've been saved, now that uh, we've experienced the grace of God, now that we've repented of our sins, been baptized in His name, and been filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost, how should we live? And the, the, the rest of this book is aimed at giving answers to that type of a question. Amen? Uh, I'll give you a brief overview of where we're going in the rest of the book, chapter 12 deals with your conduct as a member of the church. It has to do with your relationship, first of all, to God, your relationship to the corporate body of the church, and then your relationship to the individuals who are in the church. Chapter 13 discusses the Christian's responsibilities to civil government and all of mankind. Amen. We're, we have not just responsibilities within this church to each other, but we have a responsibility to our community and to those that have rule over us in civil government. And then chapters 14 and 15 deal with how to handle differences of opinion among believers, which are neutral, morally neutral. They're, 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 it's, we're not talking about heaven and hell issues. The Bible settles those. Amen? But how do we settle disputes that are not heaven and hell issues that are that are that are morally neutral. That's what chapters fourteen and fifteen will address. So, uh, as we get ready to kick that off, the uh, instructions in this section, all of it, for chapter twelve, thirteen, fourteen, and fifteen, all of those have a a essence of law in them. They're all instructions. We've spent the whole book talking about how <clears throat> the law doesn't govern you. You've been saved. You've been set free from the law, but then we begin to lay down there are certain principles you need to live by. Amen. There are certain rights and wrongs and things that you should do and things that you shouldn't do. That The very fact that these chapters are part of this book should remind us that the grace of God is not total permissiveness. It's not uh, the grace of God doesn't say live any way you want to live, do anything you want to do, be any way you want to be. Amen. The grace of God itself has certain inherent guidelines. Amen. If you're going to live for God, then you live for God. Amen. If you're going to be a Christian, then you're Christ-like. Amen. You can't live any way you want to live and live for God. You can't do anything you want to do and, and be doing the will of God. Amen. You have to follow after God. So there's instructions in the Word of God concerning how we should live. And they're applicable to where we are right now. Grace will set you free from sin. Grace will set you free from your past, but grace must and will bring about a profound change in your life. Amen. 
That's the point of the practical exhortations that exist in this book and other books of the New Testament that tell us that we need to live godly, righteously in this present world. Amen? So beginning with Romans chapter 12, I'm just going to do two verses. These two verses are the linchpin of everything that follows. This is the, the, the pivot point. This is where it all turns. Amen? And this is the basis that everything else is going to be built on. Romans chapter 12 Verses 1 and 2, it says, I beseech ye, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Would you pray with me, Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your goodness and your mercy. And, Lord, having had these scriptures read in our hearing, I'm asking that over the next few moments, Lord, you would open our ears, Lord, to hear and receive that word in our hearts, Lord, that it would impact us, touch us, and change us, Lord. I'm asking to let the word of God, Lord, mold us and make us into what you would have us to be this morning. And we give you all the glory and the honor and the praise. In Jesus' name, would you say amen? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read verse 1 again, and then I'm going to kind of break it down phrase by phrase. It begins this way. I beseech ye, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, as is your reasonable service, or which is your reasonable service. So Paul begins the practical Christian living portion of the book of Romans, by first addressing your relationship with God. Everything that follows is going to be full of instructions. There's going to be imperatives. There's going to be, uh, this is how you should live. This is what you should do. And all of those instructions hinge on our relationship with God. So Paul begins with an exhortation that we should consecrate ourselves, that we should dedicate ourselves and our lives completely to God. He starts with the word beseech, which is a, a, a Paul word. It's a, it's a word that he uses often. It is the equivalent of saying, I beg you, I beseech you. He says, I beg you, or I plead with you. I, I make this appeal to you. Amen. And Paul makes this appeal on the basis of our shared Christian experience. He doesn't beg me as a stranger. He doesn't beg me as just a, a member of a church somewhere. He begs me as a brother or a sister in the Lord. Amen. He begs me as someone who has the same experience as he has to, to heed the instruction he's about to give. And then he inserts the word, therefore. Now, therefore, uh, in the middle of this exhortation, it, it gives context to what he's saying. In order for uh, us to understand the importance of these practical instructions in godliness, we need to understand that they relate back to the doctrinal and theological discussion we've been having. Amen. So you can't take and say, well, I like this portion of the book of Romans, but now that stuff is, I don't like that. I'm going to remove that. Amen. Paul says this portion, Romans 12 forward, is built on what came before. Now knowing that we're justified by faith. Now knowing that the grace of God says free. Now knowing that we have been buried with him and we have been raised again to live in the newness of life. Knowing that, understanding that, therefore then we should present our bodies living sacrifice. Amen. And so 
it's built on the, the doctrinal instructions that have preceded it. Amen? The, the, everything that has to follow, that has to do with godly living, with living right, with living good, is founded on the good doctrine that preceded it. That is the purpose of doctrine. Good doctrine, right doctrine, should always produce righteous living. Amen? I'm going to say that again because there's a whole lot of doctrine in our world that doesn't produce godly living. Good doctrine, Bible, biblical doctrine, should always produce godly living. Amen? Doctrine that doesn't change you, doctrine that doesn't cause you to become more Christ-like and less worldly is not sound doctrine. Amen? And so Paul says everything I'm about to say, all the instruction I'm about to give you, the commands that I'm about to lay on you, the, the, the appeal I'm about to make to you, all of that is based, at, first of all, founded on the doctrine that I've been teaching you. Amen? You. A lot of people take that doctrine and try to use it to avoid the instruction. A lot of people want to take the doctrine, the, 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 the fact that I'm saved by grace, and use it to avoid any type of uh, instruction that I need to live righteous or holy or godly, that the way I conduct my life matters. But Paul said the whole reason that the way you conduct your life matters is because you've been saved by grace. Amen. The difference between that and legalism is legalism said, if you live right, you'll be saved. That's not what we're saying. We're saying if you're saved, you'll live right. Amen. That's not legalism. That's good common sense. That's good biblical doctrine. If you're saved by the grace of God, it'll impact the way you live. I'm not going to be saved by the way I live. I'm going to be saved by the grace of God. I'm going to be saved by the mercies of God. I'm going to repent of my sins, and I can't do anything about it, but God's going to wash them away. I'm going to be buried in the water in his name, and I can't take away my past, but he's going to do that for me. He's going to fill me with his spirit. Amen. I can't save myself, and so I can't get holy enough. To deserve God's salvation. I can't get holy enough to earn my way into heaven. But if I'm saved, I'm going to live godly. I'm going to live righteously. It's going to impact the way that I conduct myself. Amen? Now, Paul makes this appeal for righteous living, for godly living, based on the mercies of God. I beseech you, therefore, brethren... By the mercies of God. The mercies of God are the justification of, by faith, the grace of God that we have received, that we've been discussing in the doctrinal part of this book. The mercy that God has given us, the grace that has saved us. What Paul said is that having received such incredible mercy, having deserved judgment, but having been given grace instead in light of the mercy of God, that should compel us to live differently than we lived before we received that mercy. Amen? Amen. We would like to discuss or we would like to think that uh, the, the, the man, Barabbas, who is set free in the, the, the Easter story, he, he went into prison, a liar, a thief, a leader of a rebellious band, a murderer. But Jesus took his place, set him free. 
we would like to believe that that had an impact on him. Maybe, maybe he looked back and said, now that this life that I, I now have, it's not mine. I was sentenced to death. This life I now have, I have by the grace of God. And so I'll live to reflect that. Now, we don't have any historical record that Barabbas did that. Amen. But we do know that that is what the scripture asks of us. Amen. We had a, a guilt that we could not escape. We owed a debt that we could not pay. Amen. Sin had us hostage and we couldn't do anything about it. But God saved us. He stepped in. He changed everything in our lives. In the life that we now live, it is not ours. Amen. This, the, the, but Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ. Yet I live. But it's not I that lives, but Christ who lives in me. Amen. This life is not mine. I don't live it the way I used to live it. I don't, I don't do the stuff I used to do. I don't go the places I used to go because I have been saved by the mercy of God. Amen. And so it's the mercy of God that motivates us to live a holy, separated life. Paul is saying that if you, if you truly think about all that God has done to save you, if you really think about how far he brought you, how far he reached down to get a hold of you, if you really think about, I didn't deserve salvation. There's nothing good in me. The writer said that all of my righteousness is as filthy rags before God. It's disgusting, amen. The very best I have to offer, it's not worthy of anything. But God saved me in spite of me. Amen. He loved me when I was unlovable. He reached down and lifted me out of the muck and the mire of this world. And he made me to walk uh, in heavenly places. Uh, and when I think of his goodness, uh, when I think of his mercy, uh, when I consider how much he done to save me, how that God became flesh, uh, how he died on my cross, uh, how he shed his blood, uh, how he poured out his life. Uh, amen. That compels me to live a life that's worthy of the sacrifice that was made that I could live this life. Amen. When you consider the mercy of God, Paul said, how could you do anything less than offer your body a living sacrifice? Holy acceptable unto God. Amen. You should need no other motive than the mercy that God has already shown you. You should need no other motivation than the fact that he loved you enough to save you. Amen. I, I read a lot of World War II history. I read a lot of war history in general, but I have a couple of books in my office at home that deal with Medal of Honor winners. Uh, out of, and I guess win is a crude word to use in reference to the Medal of Honor because uh, most of the time that's uh, rewarded for extreme acts of bravery than the people who died. And, the, you, you know, it's not like you win a prize. Amen. But they were awarded the Medal of Honor. And so I, I read those stories, and I remember the story of a particular man who, who had his life saved by a Medal of Honor recipient. And the, the man who saved his life and, and saved several men's life in the heroic action in which he laid down his own life, uh, this man said that I have lived every day of my life 
in remembrance of the fact that he died in my place. And it has affected, he said, the way I have conducted myself. I have tried to live worthy of the price that he paid that I could live. This is a man talking about another man. If that is true, if it can be such an impact upon the life of an individual that another man would jump on the grenade, as it were, and take his life to save another man's life, that that man would live the rest of his life in honor of that individual who died for him, how much more should we, who have been saved by the grace of God, who have been saved by the mercy of God, live a life that is constantly reflective of the fact that he died for me and I live to honor him? Amen. There's no greater incentive to holy living than just the contemplation of the mercies of God. So Paul invites us, before he ever begins to issue instructions, before he ever begins to tell us about righteousness and godliness and holiness and how we should live and how we shouldn't live, he invites us to consider the mercies of God. Amen. When I think that the task that's laid on me is too much, when I think that the the things that are required of me are too much, amen, I have to remember he carried a cross. They whipped him until his back was laid bare. His bones were showing. He was weak and he was bloody and he was broken. And he carried a cross until he could carry it no more. And then another man carried it for him to the place where they would nail him to that cross, where they'd lift him into the heavens, where they would stab a spear into his side and blood and water would flow. And he did all of that to save me. Amen. After all that he has done, What he asks of me is small in comparison. He doesn't ask me to go get my back whipped. Brother Donnie didn't ask me to carry a cross up the Via Dolorosa and be nailed to it. Certain uh, Latin American countries, they do that every year in celebration of Easter. Some, Some pious individual volunteers to be nailed to a cross like Jesus. They whip him. They literally nail him to a cross as an example of what Jesus did. It's a way of, in their mind, of, of, of atoning for your own sins. I'm going to tell you something. He didn't ask you to atone for your own sins. And he didn't ask you to go to a cross and be nailed to it. What he did ask you to do was live a way that reflects what he's done for you. Live a life that gives him glory. Live a life that honors the sacrifice that was made. What he asks of you is a whole lot less than what he did for you. Amen. And so we are asked to present our bodies to God. The word translated as present means to yield. We must yield our bodies to God. The Christian life must produce an actual transformation that is visible in the body. Amen. We're not talking about just an internal transformation. We're not talking about just the status of your heart. We're not talking about just the status of your thought life. There is a actual transformation that shows up in the body. Now, some would dispute that. Some would attempt to soften the command by changing the word bodies 
to reflect more of an offering of your whole self to God. He wants you to offer yourself to Him. While it is true that God wants you to offer your whole self to Him, mind, body, and spirit, that is not the point here. And Paul is a very articulate writer, and he is very capable of writing what he means. He knows how to say, offer yourselves to God, and he knows how to say, offer your bodies to God. And he makes that distinction previously in the book of Romans in chapter 6 and verse 13. He used those phrases. So Paul knows how to say the difference between offer yourselves and offer your bodies. It is not an accident that he has written what he wrote. He wrote exactly what he meant to say. He said we are to offer our bodies to God. That matters because it shows the importance of offering your body to God as an instrument that God uses to show forth his glory to the world. Amen. He called you out of darkness that you might show forth his praises. This is how you do it, in the way you live. Amen. So we are to present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God. Our bodies are to be presented as a living sacrifice. The language there would, would have immediately reminded Paul's first readers of the common practice of offering up animals as sacrifices or burnt offerings to God as an act of worship. The New Testament sacrifice, however, is different from the Old Testament sacrifice. In the Old Testament sacrifice, the object being sacrificed was forced to give up its ordinary pursuits, to give up its independence of movement, to surrender its will, to surrender everything that it had ultimately to give up its life in death. You took the animal against its will. They tied the animal to the horns of the altar. You know why there are horns on the altar? Because the animal doesn't want to be there. Amen? So they tie it there. And then they take by force that animal's life. It doesn't give up its life. They take it by force. Amen? It doesn't have any say in the matter. It, it may have wanted to live a long, healthy life. It doesn't get that choice. It may have wanted to go and, and, and see the other side of the pasture. It doesn't get that choice. It may have always wanted to go down and wade in the, in the creek bottom, but it doesn't get that choice. Amen? It is compelled to an altar, and it is sacrificed there. In the New Testament, however, the sacrifice is us. We are, our bodies are the living sacrifice. And so we, we sacrifice all of the same things. We sacrifice our will. We sacrifice our self-control. We sacrifice our dreams and our hopes. And everything that that animal on the altar gave up, we give up too. But instead of it being compelled and forced, we voluntarily do so because of the mercies of God. Amen. We surrender ourselves to him, our, our independence, our ordinary pursuits, our own will, all of that voluntarily. But the difference, the key difference, is not just voluntarily versus compulsion. The key difference is the Old Testament sacrifice had to die. But God didn't ask us to die. He's already died for us. Amen. What he asked us to do was to live. Amen. A living 
sacrifice, a sacrifice that continues to live. We trade the old life of self-will and, and self-domination and, and, and even the sinful control of our, of our sin nature. We trade that life for a new and abundant life of living in the will and the purpose and the plan of God. So God asks us for a, a human sacrifice. That's us. We sacrifice ourselves as a living sacrifice. People who will live their lives totally dedicated and totally committed to him. That's what he asks for. Amen? To fulfill God's design for us to do that, that he's asked us to do, we have to adopt the attitude of sacrificial living. Amen? Oh, now we're going to get to where it's uncomfortable. Because to the world to the flesh, and to the carnal mind. The word of God sometimes seems narrow or unnecessarily restrictive. It seems to keep us away from doing things that our flesh wants to do. Amen. It seems to steer us away from doing things that we, we, we really wanted to see the other side of the pasture. We really wanted to go down and wade in the creek bottom. Amen. But, but that sacrifice doesn't have a choice in that. Amen. Now, we have a choice, but we are to be compelled by the mercies of God to live righteous, holy, according to the word of God. Amen. So we have to remember that the Christian life from the very outset is a life of sacrifice. It is a life that sacrifices itself to God's word and God's will. And all of those things, God's word, God's will, God's purpose for our life, takes priority over our ambitions. It takes priority over our philosophies. It takes priority over our traditions and our habits. Amen. By, by the tremendous mercy of God, we've been saved. And we at least owe him this much that we would live a life that reflects that, that we would not do just whatever we want to do, that we constrain ourselves to following his will. Amen? Can't tell you how many times I thought, you know, I'll just retire this pastoring business and go be somebody's saint. I'd make a really good saint for somebody. Amen? Elder, you know what I'm talking about. But I don't get that choice. Why? Because my life is constrained to the will and purpose of God. Not by force. Oh, I can make that choice. I can go do whatever I want to go do. But if I'm going to honor the mercy of God that saved me, I'm going to answer the call of God he placed on my life. Amen? So by offering ourselves as living sacrifices, we become holy and acceptable to God. Holy basically means set apart in consecration to God. We must set our bodies apart from the world, from the things of the world, in, in service to God. The Old Testament offering, the, the animal, the lamb that was going to be offered, they took it out away from the herd. They pinned it up all by itself. And that 
pinned up animal was set apart in order to protect it. Amen. It was set apart in order to, to, to make sure that it, it wouldn't get a bruise or it wouldn't get a blemish. They, they took and they, they inspected and they picked the best of the, of the herd, the best of the, of the lambs that they had, and they put it in a fenced-in enclosure all by itself and they separated it so that it wouldn't get a spot and it wouldn't get a blemish. Why? Because an, a sacrifice with a spot or a blemish was unacceptable to God. It had to be perfect. It had to be valuable. It had to be good. Amen. It had to be the best that they had. And so Paul's relating our living for God to that same principle. We don't live behind a fence. Amen. We don't live a life that is completely separated from the world and worldliness. We have to live our lives in the context of the world. We live our lives in the context of the culture that we live in, but we're supposed to live a life that is set apart. We're supposed to live a life that is, that is separated in order, not, not because we're righteous and they're not, not because we're holy and somebody else isn't. Amen. That's not the point at all. We're to live a life that is separated or holy or righteous or godly in order that we don't become spotted or blemished, in order that we don't pick up things in our life that don't belong. Amen. In order that we don't adopt habits and, and thought processes that will taint what God has started in our life that will push us in another direction away from the word and the will and the purpose of God for our lives. Amen. The, 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 the things that the Spirit constrains you not to do or to do or not to be involved in or to be involved in, those things aren't there just because God likes to build fences around your life. They're there to protect you. Amen. I, I, I use this example a lot, but if, if you were an alcoholic and you were saved by the grace of God and you're not an alcoholic anymore, amen, you don't hang out in bars. They may have the best pool tables in town. They may have whatever else that you want, but you don't go there. Amen. It's just not safe. That, that's putting yourself in a place where if you're not careful, you can get bruised. Amen. And so we live a life that is set apart. It's separated. It's there to protect us that we can present ourselves unblemished. Amen. We are to be holy and acceptable, an acceptable sacrifice. We are to live lives that are pleasing to God because they're separated. They're distinguished from the world. The Bible said of, of the Old Testament sacrifices that their aroma was pleasing to the Lord. The aroma came from the burning of the flesh of the animal. The, the offering was burnt. And as it was consumed by fire, that smell that went up of that burning flesh, the Bible called it a, a sweet-smelling savor, a, a sweet-smelling aroma to God. That's the way our lives are supposed to be. Our day-to-day -day living, as it is consumed, amen, it is supposed to produce an aroma that is pleasing to the Lord. Our church... Our choices, our, our decisions, the words of our mouth, the things that we do, the way we conduct ourselves, every thought we have, the plans we have, the things that we get ourselves involved in, the whole scope of our lives should produce a pleasing aroma to God as a living sacrifice. No, we're not consumed by fire, amen, but we should be consumed by living for God. And living for God should produce an aroma, if you will, that is pleasing 
to God. The point is that your whole life is an act of worship unto God. We like to isolate worship to what happens before the preacher preaches on Sunday night. Amen? That's what the worship team does, right? The, the point is that everything you do is worship unto God. Your whole life should reflect the glory of God. Your whole life should reflect the goodness of God. The mercies of God that reached down and lifted you out of a miry clay, they ought to be on display in the worship of your life. This is what Paul says. This is which is your reasonable service. Offering our bodies as sacrifices to God is the only reasonable, logical thing to do once we understand the depth of his mercy towards us. Once we see the mercies of God, the only reasonable thing to do is to live a life that reflects that this is our reasonable service. Consecration to God is the normal, expected result of the mercies of God. He didn't save you so you could live for yourself. He saved you so you could live for him. Amen. He didn't take your place so you could go back. We, we, I, I use Barabbas again. Amen. He didn't take your place so you could go back to life of thievery and murder and rebellion. That's not why he saved you. He saved you so you didn't have to go back to that. Amen. And whether Barabbas knew that or not, whether Barabbas realized that or not, amen, you and I realize it. He saved me from my sin so that I didn't have to remain in my sin. He saved me from lifestyles that were, that were aberrant, that were against the word of God, so I didn't have to stay in those lifestyles, amen? He set me free from where I was, amen, so I didn't have to go back to it, but so that I could live a life that is different. I am not my own. I've been bought with a price. Second, our first Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 and 20 says, What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? You've been filled with the Holy Ghost, right? Don't you understand then that your body is a temple of God? Amen. That you are not your own? This is what he says. For you are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God. You're bought with a price. So let it show up in the way you live. You've been bought with a price, so let it show up in the way you act. Glorify God in your body and in your spirit. Serving God is the most reasonable thing that you could do in view of the incredible salvation that he has given you, in view of the great mercies of God that you've received. Amen? Verse 2, then, gives clarity to the admonishments of verse 1. Verse 1 was about the what, and verse 2 is about the how. Verse 2 says, And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So intellectually, we now know that we should offer our bodies as living sacrifices and that they should be holy and pleasing unto God. The operative question then is how do we do that? How do we accomplish that? 
This verse provides the answer to that question, and it kicks off the remainder of the book of Romans, which is filled with practical instructions regarding godly living. Amen? And so it answers that question this way. Paul defines a separated life by first telling us what it should not be and then telling us what it is. There's a negative statement, and then there's a positive statement. It starts with a negative, and be not conformed to this world. That's what the, the, the consecrated life is not supposed to be, conformed to this world. That word translated as conformed means to fashion after or pattern after. And the word for world means age. It refers not just to the, the, the earth as a, as, a, as a planet or as a world. It refers to the age or the culture in which we live. It, it refers to the customs or patterns of a worldly society. And, and that's where the believer lives. That's where we find ourselves. That's where we live out. Our faith is intended to be lived out in the context of culture. We're not intended to be separated off behind a wall somewhere in a monastery. We were made to show forth the graces of God in the culture in which we live. But this is what Paul said. We're not to be conformed to that culture. Amen? Brother Bernard points out that the variety of different translations of this verse help us grasp the intent of this verse. The Amplified Bible says, do not be conformed to this world, this age, fashioned after and adapted to its external superficial customs. Norley's translation says, do not live according to the fashions of the times. Goodspeed said, you must not adopt the customs of the world. Another translation said, do not imitate the way of the world. And Philip's translation, I like best, said, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold. All of those translations have the same concept in common. We are not to conform to the culture in which we live. Amen? We are not to conform to the world in which we find ourselves. That doesn't just mean in the way we think. That doesn't just mean in, in our heart. That means in the way that we act, the way that we dress, the way that we conduct ourselves in business, the way that we treat others around us, the way we treat our neighbor, amen, not just the way we treat church folks, but the way we treat folks that are not in church. Everything in our life should be characterized by the fact that we are a living sacrifice to God, not the culture of our world. That's not what should shape us, not, not the, 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 prevailing traditions or prevailing uh, new fads or whatever. That's not what should shape us. Not what the Supreme Court says. Not what uh, the, the city government says. Not what they teach in school. What should shape us is the fact that we are a living sacrifice unto God. His word. His will. His purpose, His plan, the never-changing principles of what is good and acceptable unto God, those are the things that should govern our lives. Amen? Now, as we talk about culture, and I, I could teach all day long on culture, and I, I promise I'm not going to do that. I'm trying to get through this before, you know, next week or something. So I will say this, though. The, 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 you might ask, what is inherently wrong then? With culture. You know, what, what's wrong with the society or the culture 
that Paul would say, no matter what society you live in, don't conform to it. The answer would be that culture in and of itself is not what's wrong. It's the fact that the culture that we live in, in the world, is indelibly marked by sin. Amen. And it is guided by a carnal system that is contrary to the ways of God. It's contrary to the word of God. It is The scripture uses very strong language regarding this. It says that the, the world, the culture we live in, is at war with God. It uses the word enmity, which means hatred. It is at war with God. That's what's wrong with the culture. What's wrong with the culture is not that, that men come together in society and have uh, government and have arts and humanities and, and social services. That's not what's wrong with the culture. What's wrong with the culture is that all of that and all of the, the things that are, are make up the culture are permeated by a sinful anti-God mentality. And if we're not careful, living in that culture, not being separated from it, not being, not being behind a fence somewhere, but actually living out our faith in the middle of that culture, if we're not careful, we'll allow that culture that's under the influence of sin and that goes against everything that God considers to be good and holy and acceptable and right. If we're not careful, we'll let that culture change the way we think. Amen? We'll let that culture get in our mind. We get surrounded by things. We see things constantly all around us all the time that are not right, that are not good, and they become normal. And if we're not careful, our mind begins to accept sin as normal. Amen? If we're not careful, we begin to think, well, every businessman cheats. We're not careful. We begin to think, well, you know, adultery is just a real common thing in our society. If we're not careful, we begin to think of, and I, I keep naming sin until I get down to where you're living, amen. But the fact is that if we're not careful, we, we get to thinking that, well, I can do this because this is okay because I see it everywhere. That's how culture impacts us. The culture is under the influence of an ungodly Control, amen. That's why we're admonished not to conform to the culture. We don't conform to the society, amen. It doesn't matter where that culture is. It doesn't matter what continent it's on. It doesn't matter that Asian culture is different than America culture. It doesn't matter that the culture I live in is different than the culture that Paul lived in. It doesn't matter that we've got iPhones and he, he wore sandals and rode a camel. The culture was still ungodly, Amen. The things that it promoted, the things that it pushed were still ungodly. Amen. The, the principles that it was based on still sought after the fleshly things and worldly things and carnal things instead of godly things and holy things and righteous things. Amen. So it matters that the culture is under the influence of sin. And so we're not to allow ourselves to become conformed to that influence. And listen. We live in a culture that justifies sin. We live in a culture that calls that which is right, wrong, and that which is wrong, right. That which is good, evil, and that which is evil, good. And we think we're unique in that, but we're not. Paul lived in a culture that called that which was right, wrong, and that which was wrong, right. 
Paul lived in a culture that called that which was good evil, stoned, threw good men to the lions in the Colosseums of Rome. They took Christians and carried them in. And for the entertainment of the crowds, they watched lions and beasts tear them from limb to limb and tear them and destroy their bodies and kill them. Amen. It's not nothing new that the attitude or the mindset or the, 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 the prevailing drive in the culture, it may show up different in this technological age or this age of advancement than it did then, but it's the same spirit. Amen. And so that culture is something we can't allow to afford to impact us. We can't allow to afford to let it, it change us. And we're constantly being pressed and pressured to give in to that way of thinking. We're constantly being pressed and pressured to modify. We, you know, there's certain things we just don't talk about in public. There's certain things you just don't say anymore. There's certain places you, there, 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 there's, there's certain places uh, uh, politically or even religiously that you just don't go anymore. Amen. Because that's not, it's not socially acceptable. It's not politically correct and we're constantly being forced to try to conform or being tried forced to try we're being influenced to be forced to conform we're not going to conform amen that's the point get myself tongue tangled praise the lord we're not to conform to the value system and the lifestyles of this world but this is what the scripture says rather than be conformed we are to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Instead of conforming, we're to be transformed. How are we transformed? By the renewing of the mind. The Greek word for transformed is a word from which we get our word metamorphosis. And it means pretty much the same thing. Metamorphosis has to do with a transformation. It is the process that turns a caterpillar into a butterfly. Now think about that for a minute. It's not just an internal change. The transformation that turns a caterpillar into a butterfly is not just the transformation of its character or its nature. You know, it, just because a caterpillar walks around going, I think I'm a butterfly, doesn't mean it can fly. Amen? Oh, I could preach for a little while. But there is a metamorphosis that takes place where a caterpillar gets into that cocoon and something distinctive changes. And when it emerges from that process, it's not a worm anymore. It can fly. It's been changed. It's been transformed. Amen. When we talk about this transformation. We're talking about uh, 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 something that changes us in, entirely, wholly. Amen. It doesn't just change our thought process. It doesn't just change our heart. It doesn't just change our character. It changes us externally too. It changes our very appearance. It changes our very actions. It changes the things we say, the places we go. It changes everything about us. Amen. It's not, you can't hide. Listen, if you're a worm who thinks you're a butterfly, you can hide the fact that you're a butterfly. You know, when you're with other worms, you can act like a worm. But when you're a butterfly, you know, when you're around the butterflies, you can say, I aspire to be one of you guys' worms. But you can hide the fact that you think you're a butterfly. But once you've been changed, you can't hide it anymore. Amen? It's a transformation. 
it changes you. It alters you. It makes you into something you weren't before. Paul has, when he uses that word transformation, he has a process in mind. This is important. It's not a one-time event. We're, we're not talking about the moment of conversion. We're not talking about a singular moment of consecration where you come to an altar and you dedicate your life to God and there you're transformed. We're talking about a process of growing in grace. We're talking about a process of becoming what God called you to be. The caterpillar doesn't become a butterfly just in an instant. There's a process of change. The thing that you have to be careful about is don't abort the process. Don't stop the process. It may not happen as fast as you want it to happen. It may not happen to somebody else, a new convert in the church, as fast as you'd like to see it happen for them. Don't you dare tell them they're not holy, godly, or righteous because they're not growing as fast as you did. Don't abort the process. It's a process. Amen? Every baby learns to walk. Well, I, that, that is mentally has full capacity, learns to walk. But not every baby learns to walk at the same stage. Amen? Some of those get that boot scoot, booty scoot down, and they just don't want to move beyond that. They booty scoot all over the place. When you know they could get up and walk. Amen? Don't you dare tell somebody who's in the process of changing because you're not changing fast enough. There's something wrong with you. Amen? You let God and the Word of God and the preacher handle that. Amen. Everybody say, God bless the pastor. <laughs> so Paul has a process in mind. He has this growth process. It's a process by which Christ is formed in us. And here's the key. None of us are butterflies yet. Before you point your finger at somebody and say, well, they're not as far along as they should be, you need to recognize you're not as far along as you should be either. Yeah, that's the truth of the matter. I'm not, I'm not making that transformation complete till I cross over to the other side. It's a growth process that lasts the rest of my life. Amen? Christ is being formed in me. The nature of God, the, the character of Christ is, is being formed in my character. And I'm going to make mistakes sometimes. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mess up. And my personal will is sometimes going to get in the way. And, and I'm going to be honest with you, I get angry sometimes. Amen? And it's not always the righteous kind of anger that Jesus had. Sometimes I'm in the wrong. Christ is being formed in me, though. Amen. Sometimes I had to go to repent and I had to put my, my face on an altar and say, God, I'm sorry. And sometimes I had to go to my wife and say, I'm sorry. Or my boys and say, I'm sorry. Or somebody else and say, you know, I've messed up. But, but the point is that I am in a process of change. Now, that's not an excuse to live in sin. That's not an excuse to go back to what you used to be. That's not an excuse to go back to being a worm in the middle of the process. But you have to recognize the fact that you're growing. Amen? I say, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid I'm not going to get done with this lesson. I say this a lot. I used to say it a lot when I was a youth pastor. If I quit adding stuff to these notes, we'd get finished. What really matters is direction. Holiness is not a 
It's not a destination. Uh, not a destination you're going to reach in this life. It's a continuum. It really doesn't matter so much where you are on that continuum. Whether you're a new convert or you're an established saint of God or you're an elder saint of God that's, that's learned some things. What matters is the direction you're going. Whether you're proceeding towards God or walking away from God. You can, no matter what stage of life you're in, you're going to be going in one of those two directions. That's what matters. Amen? That's what is so incredibly important. Is Christ being formed in me? Or have I taken over? Am I trying to go back to being a worm again? Amen? The process by which Christ is formed in us, Brother Bernard says, that's the process where we learn to take on the mind of Christ. We learn to think not according to the world's principles, but according to spiritual principles. We learn to evaluate our life by heavenly standards, not the standard of our culture. In other words, we are we're to shape our lives according to a biblical, Christ-centered worldview rather than the ungodly culture that we live in. We're to set our minds on things above, not on earthly things. That means that uh, we, we're to have our mind Renewed. That's what he says. We are, we are to be transformed by the renewing of the mind. The renewing of the mind is the process of, of renewing your ability to think right. Amen. Uh, especially about spiritual things and moral things. It's, it's, it's a process. See, your mind is where you perceive what is right and what is wrong. Your mind is where you perceive what is true and what is false. It is the seat of intellectual and moral judgment in your life. It is the power of your moral consciousness. And if you're not careful, this world will so influence your mind that you begin to think that things that are wrong are right. Amen? That's the basis of the culture. It promotes that which is wrong is right. And if you're not careful, it'll change the way you think, and it begins to influence the way that you think because you're constantly bombarded with ungodliness. You're constantly bombarded with a spirit that is anti-Christ. And if you're not careful, it'll impede the growth of Christ in you. You're surrounded by it. It is everywhere, and, and it, it, it seems to become normal, that, that way of thinking and that way of living. And if we're not careful, we become desensitized to it, and our mind will be affected, and we'll begin to think of certain things as being permissible that the scripture plainly dictates are not permissible. Amen? That's how whole religious institutions uh, embrace sin and ungodliness. They didn't get there just because they had a meeting one day and decided, well, we're going to say this kind of behavior is okay. They got there because over the process of time, their way of thinking got contrary to the Word of God. And they decided their justification meant more to them than what the Word of God says. And they made that which was wrong appear to be right. How do we, st if, if that happens to people who are religious and are following after God, how do we stop that? That's simple. It's stopped by the renewing of your mind. Amen. The, the, the renewing of the influence of the Holy Ghost in your mind, the renewing of the influence of the power of God working in you, that keeps your values right. That keeps your thought process right. That keeps the things that are in your mind right and good and godly. And you measure yourself, not by the measuring stick of the world, not by the measuring stick of culture, not by the measuring stick of what the people at work think is okay, but the measuring stick of what the Word of God says. 
Amen? It takes a renewing influence of the Holy Ghost to transform your mind. The way we think, the way we perceive our world, the way we view sin and righteousness, all of that is influenced by the renewing of our mind. The Holy Ghost renews our ability to think right. Listen, if you don't get anything else I'm going to say, get this. The bottom line is that a believer thinks differently than an unbeliever. The thought process is different. We view sin differently. We view things that are acceptable to culture differently. We think different. The way we think is alien and foreign to this world. If we're not careful... If I'm not careful, I'm going to preach all day. If we're not careful, when you move into a new culture and, and, and somebody comes here from, say, Africa, and they come in, they've got their, their, their uh, nature, they've got their, their traditions, they've got the way they dressed, their, uh, the way they talk has a certain inflection, uh, that, the accent that you know where they came from. Some people live in a culture and they never change that. They're, they're not conformed. But some of them, after they've been here a few years, we go to Taiwan, we visit over there, and there's a young lady, her name is Froggy. Uh, Froggy, her ch Chinese name has to do with frogs, and so we call her Froggy. Froggy is the only Taiwanese person who speaks fluent Chinese and American who will say y'all. Y'all, come on now. Why does she say y'all? Because she went to Bible college in Mississippi. And she was conformed. If we're not careful, it'll conform the way we think. This world will change the way we think. I got to hurry up, y'all. Stop getting me sidetracked. That you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. With this kind of spiritual transformation that we're talking about, the renewing of the mind, we discover God's will for our lives. So you're looking for God's will? I'm going to tell you how to find God's will. Get your mind renewed. Get your thought process right. Each of us can know and do God's will for our lives if we'll consecrate ourselves to God, if we'll make our bodies a living sacrifice unto Him and let Him renew our mind. Brother Bernard said that when your minds are renewed day by day, you find God's will to be good for you, it's good. It's good for you. It is acceptable and pleasing to God, and it's perfect in every way. It's good for you. It's acceptable to God, and it's perfect. There is no other way that would be better for your life. So when a believer's mind is transformed, his thinking ability, his moral reasoning, his spiritual understanding, all of those things are able to properly assess and understand the things that are coming into his life and accept only that which conforms to the will of God. You're faced with choices every day. I have people call me and say, Pastor, how do I make this choice? What do I do about this decision? I need, I need you to pray about this. I don't know if this is the right choice or the wrong choice. How do you learn to tell the difference between right choice and wrong choice? Get your mind under the influence of the Holy Ghost. Amen? You get your mind under the influence of the will of God. One scholar said that the renewing of our mind instills within us a holy instinct. 
It puts within us a, 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 a thought process that can discern in conflicting situations the will of God from the will of self. It can tell the difference between my will and God's will. I don't get there just because I decide I want to be there. I get there because the power of God transforms. Amen. As I grow in Christ, I grow in my ability to discern right from wrong. As I grow in Christ, I grow in my ability to tell his will from my will. Amen? The predominant principle here is that an unsaved person cannot trust his moral instinct. It's an illusion to think that the human conscience, apart from the renewal of the Holy Ghost, is a reliable guide to moral conduct. It is not. I'll give you two scriptures for illustration, and I'm about to close. Proverbs chapter 14 and verse 12 said, There is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Proverbs chapter 21 and verse 2 says, Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord pondereth the hearts. Matthew Henry said that we are all apt to be partial when we are judging ourselves and our own actions. and We think too favorably of our own character as if there was nothing wrong in us. The human mind says that, 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 that what you want to do is okay because that's what you want to do. Matthew Henry says that the mind is very ingenious. It can put a fair face on a foul matter and make that appear to be right, which it is in and of itself wrong. Amen? Our corrupted mind is what stops the voice of a good conscience. How do we change that? We're transformed by the renewing of our mind in the power of the Holy Ghost. Would you stand with me, Brother Ryan? Would you come to the music? I don't know. I think I've been a solid hour. I don't apologize for what I preached. I do apologize for not exercising better brevity. Listen to what I've got to say. This is the last thing I'm going to say. You will never be saved. You will never be saved by doing what seems right to you. Can't tell you how many times I've heard it, Pastor. I, I, I'm just pray for me. I know I'm not at church right now. Just pray for me. I'm just I'm trying to live out my life by what I believe is right. The problem with that is what you believe is right is wrong. Because your mind, without the influence of the Holy Ghost, without the influence of God, your mind will accept that which is wrong and call it right. Call it good. That's how our world gets in the condition it's in today. It takes the renewing of your mind by the Holy Ghost to change that. Without the Holy Ghost, your moral compass is broke. I'm going to say that again. Without the Holy Ghost, your moral compass is broke. It doesn't point true. Amen. God is the only thing that can let you know what's right and what's wrong. It's the power of God working in your mind. Amen. I believe this morning, and I know I've been long, and if you just take a moment, I believe that God is still in the business of renewing minds. This is what I believe. I believe you need that to happen every single day of your life. I believe that one day, 
without the renewing of your mind by the Holy Ghost is one day too many. Amen. One day without the influence of the Spirit of God refreshing and renewing you is one day too many. They say, Brother McCall, you're saying that if I don't pray through every day that I'm going to be lost? No, that's not what I said. But what I did say is if the day that you don't pray and the day that the influence of the Holy Ghost doesn't alter your mind may be the day that you make a life-changing decision that may cause you to miss heaven by a mile. It's important that I let myself be renewed by the power of the Holy Ghost. So I'm giving a general altar call this morning to everyone that's under the sound of my voice. Can we find a place of prayer and can we pray, Lord, would you renew my mind? Would you let a, a right thought process be there? Would you let right thinking be there? God, would you? The power of the Holy Ghost, not what I think is right, not what I think is good. Uh, I think it's good to go fishing on Sunday morning. That don't make it right. Amen. I may think it's good to go out and, and, and do something all night long and, and, and cause me not to be able to make it to church. That doesn't mean it's right. Amen. I, I may think it's good to do a whole lot of things. That doesn't make it right. Amen. Would you pray, Lord, put a right mind in me. Put a right thought process in place. Let the Holy Ghost transform me by the renewing of my mind.